After a brief summer hiatus from our church podcast, we're back um, shooting for a more regular release of podcast episodes for Resurrection Church. Um, Over the summer, we had done a little bit of a Summer in the Second Temple series where we talked about literature that had been written during the Second Temple period. And we talked there especially about the, the book Susanna. This was one of my favorite stories. And when I had talked about that story, I had talked with a number of individuals at church, and one of them is Matthew Wiedemann. Matthew enjoyed reading Susanna and started reading other books from the Apocrypha, other Second Temple writings, and he agreed to talk with me tonight about Judith. So Matthew, thanks for joining me on our church podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this is your first time on our church podcast, I believe. Uh, so thanks for you know stepping outside of of your norm of just listening to the podcast to now um, contributing to it. No, of course, yeah. First time on the podcast. Uh, hopefully not the last time. So we'll see how it goes. Well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I guess yeah. so. I should give just a brief warning to parents. Um, we're talking about the story of Judith, and there are some features to the story that include some fairly violent features. And if you're listening with your children around, you might want to take that into consideration. We won't be too graphic, but as many of the Old Testament or Old Testament-like stories are, there are some features to the story that might not be comfortable or appropriate for your children to listen to. Um, But as we talk about those things, we will, of course, talk about them in an appropriate way, but you just might want to know that. So Matthew, you've read Judith. um, Yes. And I think eventually we should just walk through kind of the general storyline um, and make some comments along the way. But why did you read Judith? And um, have you found any benefit in reading some of the Second Temple literature? Um, well, I, was, I didn't know anything about any of the, what, the Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. So I was just going through kind of reading random, uh, random books or whatever I guess they are. Um, yeah, just whatever names... I didn't know what Judith. I didn't know who Judith was. I couldn't really tell from the name if it was a man or a woman. Okay. So going into it reading, I, I kind of thought it was maybe a woman, but I I really didn't know. Yeah. So. so Judith is actually like the feminine form of Judean or Jew. So it's like a, a female Jew. It, so she is sort of like an archetypal figure. Um, okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Be- well, yeah, I don't want to. Uh, okay, that makes sense. I don't want to jump ahead. Then I have many probably random comments. Okay, so we'll, great. We'll get to them in time, I guess. Well, let's let's maybe walk through the story a little bit. But to to even get into it, I think we we need to make some comments about whether this is historical, right, or not. Um, could you tell as you were reading through this, or how did it strike you? Right. I did again, I didn't know anything about it going into it reading it. So as I was going through it, I thought, oh, cuz especially the first several chapters, they seem pretty detailed with kind of historic seeming details, just all these different tribes, countries, they went here, did this, these people. So it, it seemed pretty detailed. So I was thinking, oh, this is must be a true historic account of something that happened. Mm-hmm. But as I kind of went through it, there were parts where I was like, eh, is this really? 
this really happen or not? I'm like, I don't know about this. So Yeah, I I think all the best guesses say this is not a historical or an historical, I think is how you're supposed to say. It. It's not an historical yeah. account. Um, it's more of maybe what we would call fiction um, or or maybe even like it could be classified as maybe like rebellion literature or something like mm. that because Israel is in exile in a sense, you know, they're under Roman authority or something like that. And um, so this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who is labeled as the king of Assyria, every other time we come across Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, right? And so we start to imagine that this guy is probably, it's a name that's been assigned for whatever ruler was exercising authority over Israel at that time. So it's kind of like a, a fairy tale almost, or like a, action story that sure. shows Israel prevailing against the people who currently rule over them, but they can't use that guy's name because he's in charge. You know what I mean? Okay. So I guess maybe a good parallel would be if there was an individual in Nazi Germany, like a Jewish individual who saw their people being oppressed by Hitler and the Nazis, and they wrote a story about a Jewish woman who is going to, um, you know, maybe assassinate the leader of their army, but they can't. They can't say this lady killed Hitler because if anyone else hears that story, you're in big trouble. Right. So you maybe said it hundreds of years before, and you put a stand-in guy who's essentially representing the figure that you hope is going to be assassinated or killed. So I think it's fiction, and it's maybe what I would classify as rebellion literature. Okay. No, that makes sense. I I would think that it's literature. After reading through it a few times, yeah. Yeah. There there are some things in it that don't quite add up or make sense to me. A couple things I kind of have issue with where I'm like, that wouldn't have been real. Like, I'm not buying it. Well, you'll have to point those out along the way. Yeah. So maybe I'll just start to outline the features of the story, and then you pause me with things that you would want to comment on or chase down. I I got my comments ready. Okay. So the story starts out, as I mentioned, with this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who is listed as the ruler over Assyria in the great city of Nineveh. And that's sort of what tips us off to understand this is not history. This is a different kind of story. Um, But this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, wants to go to war against this other guy, Arphaxid, or Arpaxid. I don't know how we should pronounce that. And so he tries to enlist all these other countries to go to war with him. So he calls them to battle, and none of the other countries join him. Um, so going back to our World War II illustration, it might be like um, Britain saying, we need to fight against Germany and asking the U.S. to help, and the U.S. saying, no, we're, we're not going to help. So kind of like World War One that way. Um, but he asked people to help. No one responds. So he says, I'm going to fight this guy anyway. And he fights him, and he wins. He beats that guy. And now he's sort of vindictively looking at anyone who refused to offer him help, and now he's going to hunt them down one at a time and take them out. And so he... He's going about to do this, and he calls on this general of his, the commander-in-chief of his army, this guy, Holofernes. 
And he tells this guy, take all the soldiers you need possible, you know, like round them all up and start crushing these people who failed to help me. And there were so many people in chapter 2, verse 20, they're described as a large mixed group, like a swarm of locusts, um, even like the sand of the earth for their multitude was innumerable. So you can just imagine like all of the armies of Sauron coming together to go out and crush people, like just this innumerable number of orcs or something like that. Oh, I was going to say, I don't know that reference, but when you said orcs. Okay, well, Lord of the Rings, but... um, Uh, I'm yeah. tracking now. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is relying on Holofernes, his commander-in-chief, to go out and fight all of these nations that failed to, you know, come to war. And eventually, they conquer outward, and they, they extend as far as Judah, so starting to come to the land of Israel. And um, the people living—and this is in chapter 4 now— the people living in Judah, they've returned from the exile and um, they they are praying for the Lord to protect them because they've heard about, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar's armies, Holofernes, and they know that it's a frightful situation and they need the Lord to defend them. So in all of chapter four, they're praying, they're crying out earnestly to the God of Israel. Um, and, and this is what it their prayer sounds like in chapter 4, verse 12. You know, they're all covered in sackcloth. They even wrapped the altar with sackcloth and cried aloud earnestly to the God of Israel in one accord that their children be not delivered as plunder and women as booty and the cities of their inheritance over to destruction and the sanctuary to profanation and reproach by the malicious joy of the Gentiles. So the Lord listened to their voice and saw their affliction, for the people were fasting many days in all Judah and Jerusalem before the sanctuary of the Lord Almighty. Um, but they aren't delivered yet. Um, there's there's this problem that the army is still coming, and they're still afraid, but they're crying out to the Lord. So do you have any comments up to this point? Um, no. Okay. Uh, the first... It seems like the first, whatever, four, five, six chapters are kind of setting the stage, kind of the background for the story. Um, I have no comments right now that would be constructive. Okay, so up to this point, I think the way that Israel is acting as Holofernes and Nebuchadnezzar's army approaches them sounds a lot like some of the territories um, and cities, how they, they talked when Israel was conquering the land where we read of that in, you know, the Pentateuch and into Joshua, where they're so fearful because they've heard of the the strength of the Lord. And so as Israel's coming, some are sending out people to make deceptive treaties. Others are, you know, like Rahab are giving the city over, knowing that it's going to be destroyed. Well, Israel sounds like they're just as fearful of, of this pagan king as all the pagans were fearful of the true God of Israel back during the time of conquest. So it's interesting to me that there's almost a role reversal at this point. So we get into chapter five, and uh, this guy, Holofernes, the commander-in-chief of the army of Assyria, knew that Israel was preparing for war and praying to the Lord um, for protection as he's approaching them. And so there's this war council that's called as they're trying to figure out how do we attack Israel? 
Um, one of the problems is that Israel is well guarded by the hill country. You know, Judea is, is protected just by the geography. And so they're trying to figure out what's the best way to attack this small nation. And this guy, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. Akior, maybe, is how we'd pronounce it. Um, he's He gives a report to Holofernes, and he advises against going to war against Israel. So he's telling Holofernes, you should not go to war against Israel, and this is why. They have a whole history of doing to other nations what you just did to other nations. And their God delivered them from Egypt. Like, so he kind of traces their history all the way back to Abraham, all the way up to the conquest to the land. And um, he notes, like in chapter 5, verse 11, that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had, you know, dealt cruelly with them. And, um, but God, they cried out to God and God responded. And what they realized, as he notes in verse 17, is as long as they did not sin against their God, good things were with them because the God who hates iniquity is with them. But when they turned away from the way that was established for them, they were utterly defeated in very many battles, and they were taken as prisoners to a land not their own. So that's the exile. And even the temple of their God became a foundation. So that's referring to the first destruction of the temple, and their cities were conquered by their enemies. So this guy is telling Holofernes, look, the only way they can be defeated is if they disobey their God, because they have this relationship with God where if they do what he wants them to do, he blesses them. And if he does, if they don't, he curses them. Um, but this guy reports to Holofernes, they've returned to God. They've come out of exile. They've returned home. And um, now their Lord is going to protect them and defend them. So you should not go to war against them. Yeah. I think Holofernes is kind of, you know, he's feeling himself at this point because they've taken down a few, what, nations, countries, whatever, up to this point, you know. Yeah, he's he, he's on a roll. He feels like so he he's feels a little arrogant. like he can't be defeated. Right, and um, he responds to this guy, Akior, and says, "There is no god but Nebuchadnezzar." In chapter six, and he essentially tells Akior, "You have turned against me. You've turned against our god Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to do is we're going to tie you up and hand you over to Israel." And so that's what they do. They bind this guy up and drop him off and essentially say, look, um, they're going to kill you and we're going to kill them. So you're, you're a traitor, but you're not really on their team and, and they're going to kill you and you're never going to see my face again. That, that's what Holofernes tells him. And as you know, that's somewhat ironic because um, Akior will see Holofernes' face again, just not in the same way that um, maybe one would anticipate. Oh, no. So then we get to chapter 7. And Holofernes is trying to figure out what, how, how should we take on Israel? Because they are defended by this hill country. And I think somewhere in this story, it even mentions that the only way for them to, to kind of get into the city is through a pass that only two people across can come. So even though they have a larger army, they'll get cut down as, as they're coming through. Right. So someone makes a suggestion that instead of um, going in and attacking them, they see, create a siege. So kind of you can imagine the big army outside of the castle cutting off all the water and food supplies, and eventually, you know, they're going to have to surrender. And so that's what Holofernes and his army is going to do. 
And then, of course, the Israelites cry out to the Lord again. And at the end of chapter 7, um, they are pretty depressed because at that point, their food supply and their water supply is cut off. And so one of their leaders essentially said at the end of chapter 7 that um, instead of surrendering right now, let's wait another five days and see if the Lord will be merciful to us. Um, so he said, let's wait five days. And if if God rescues us, awesome. If not, then we're going to surrender. Is there other, I'm trying to think, is, is there other parallels of people doing things like that in the Old Testament? Yeah, I can't remember in the Old Testament if there was a, you know, if, if God doesn't rescue us in this many days, then we're going to yeah. surrender. But in other, like, I think in some Greek mythology, there there are some close parallels. Okay. I was reading a little bit of background to this story, and someone had noted that there was a similar situation in a Greek myth. Okay. Because, yeah, some of the dynamics or decisions, were, it, it feels a little different than other biblical stories, which... I don't know. That kind of stood out to me. It's like, you got five days, God. If not, we're surrendering. It's like, okay. Yeah. And and whenever there, there's a demand on God to act in a particular time frame, it seems like that's a negative thing. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I think the closest example we might have there would be um, when God tells Abraham, look, your your descendants are going to have this land but it won't be for like 415 years. And if Abraham had said, well, I want you to do it in the next five days, otherwise I'm not trusting you. Well, that would be bad. Um, Or when, even when Abraham is kind of um, bartering with the Lord about protecting Lot and not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, there's some back and forth there that- He keeps talking them down. Yeah, that might be- close in parallel, but this is, I think, pretty unique, as you're, yeah. you're mentioning. Yeah, because with the trying to find the righteous people in the city, it's like, I mean, you know, God knew no no matter what number he threw out that that, that wouldn't happen. And so. Yeah. Yeah, so I think before we move on, I want to make a couple of observations. And one of them would be that clearly this story is indicating um, a shift in Israel's struggle with sin, we might say, to where throughout the Old Testament, we see them returning to false gods over and over and over and over again. Um, But it seems like after the return from exile, and definitely by the time we read of Jesus's ministry in the New Testament, that kind of idolatry is just unheard of in Israel. They've they've sort of learned their lesson. We're not turning to another god. And um, when Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus's claim to to equality with God was so um, ostracizing and awful to them is because they've realized our our worship of false god is what's put us in exile over and over and over again. So then you get some of these more pop level stories where it's just made clear Israel is not doing that anymore. They they've learned their lesson. So, so I think we start to see in the Second Temple literature a shift from a propensity towards worshiping false gods to now saying we're, we're going to worship only the true God. And of course, they can commit idolatry in other ways, but it won't be going after Baal and you know the, the false gods of, of other countries. 
Um, I think the second feature to know is that this story expresses maybe what we could call a pharisaical-like mindset of if we keep the law perfectly, we'll be protected by God. Um, we, we won't be defeated. And um, we're, doing, we're doing what's right. Nothing can change. And on one level, that's correct, because they're saying we're keeping the covenant legislation, and so therefore we'll receive the blessings from the Lord. Um, but I think we can also see how um, there's maybe a popularizing of our duty is, is to the law above all else, and therefore we'll secure blessings. And maybe not so much a true faith and, and trust in the Lord, as you see here, where they're ready to um, surrender the city if God doesn't act on their timeline. I concur. Well, let's continue on in the story. So this is, we've talked through the first half of this story, the first seven chapters. We get to chapter eight, where we are introduced to the hero or the female hero, the heroine, heroine of the story. Yeah, I think it's heroine. I think so too. That's just sometimes it, a complicated thing to to say. Yeah. Um, the female hero of the story, Judith. Heroess. Oh, there we go. Just invented a new term. Well, the 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 woman warrior of the story, Judith, is introduced here, and she's introduced it with a genealogy, and then the author notes that her husband died during the days of the barley harvest, and so he's out there, and the situation is that he's you know binding up sheaves in the field, and the burning heat came on his head, and he fell upon his bed and died, in this town, Bethulia. And Bethulia is probably, it's not a real town. We have no evidence of this town anywhere. That's another indication that this is not a, a true story. Yeah. But this, her husband essentially dies of a heat stroke, it seems. Yeah, this this is one of my, I don't know if I want to say problems with the story. Okay. But that's... They they could have come up with something better than that. That that's weak to me. Well, I, I mean, and he he wasn't the one binding the sheaves. He was overseeing it. Well, this, this dude's just standing out there watching people work hard. Yeah, and then he keels over from the. It's like, did he wear a sweater on a warm day? <laughs> and you yeah. know what I mean. I he comes across extremely weak. Okay. And, I And kind of pathetic. I can see that. Um, I think, though, that it maybe would be plausible. And you think farmer guy working out in the field, and he, he has a heat stroke. Um, there are other people who die in the Old Testament with far less explanation. And yeah, well, It would have um, been better for him to have less explanation because okay. this makes him sound. I, when I read that, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Well, regardless, this guy okay. died. He he did. He did um, so Judith is a widow, and ostensibly they have no children. So this guy died unexpectedly. It seems um, there's no mention of children. So he must have been very young and younger guy. Freak accident, maybe healthy, we could call apparently. it. Um, so she's been a widow for 
three years and four months. So not a lot of time has passed. She's still mourning. Um, so she still is wearing what's referred to here as the garments of her widowhood. So maybe this darker, um, not very flashy apparel. And um, she's been fasting. She's pictured here really as like an extraordinary keeper of the law, someone who goes beyond the requirements of the law because she's been fasting all the day of all the days of her widowhood, except the day before the Sabbath and the, the day after the Sabbath and the day before new moon and the holidays and the joyful days of the house of Israel. So she, she is a righteous woman, I think is what's being communicated here. She's keeping the law and even going beyond the, the requirements of the law. So what kind of fast would that be that she was doing? From food. So probably um, a fast until sundown. And, okay. and then there would be a meal or something like that. Uh, okay. I, I don't know that I could comment authoritatively on that totally, but definitely there's a reckoning of the the next day starts in the evening. Um, and I think that would be the case. So you would fast until sundown and then eat, perhaps. Yeah. I've Some other... Do Muslim people do that? Don't they do that? Is that Ramadan yeah, think, or something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think um, that's a fairly properly widespread tradition if we looked at various religions, especially okay. from the, you know, Near East or whatever, okay. where where that might be the case. Um, so there's a couple people I work with that do that currently. Yes. Where they, they told me that, oh, we don't eat until sundown or whatever, so we don't eat all day. I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So when you read this, it wouldn't probably be a fast for six days, you know, yeah, for seems, six days in a row. That but, seemed a little grueling um, if she's been doing that for three years. But this would still be grueling um, to fast nearly True. every day. But she's participating in, in the religious festivals and everything else. So we learn that she's a righteous woman, according to the standards here. But then we also learn that she's a, an attractive woman. And so it describes her as shapely in form and very beautiful in appearance and beyond that, she's also wealthy. Her husband left for her gold and silver and male and female servants and livestock and fields, and she continued to live on them. So she's kind of independently wealthy. She's very attractive and very righteous. And the summary line is that there was no one who brought an evil word against her because she feared God very much. So this is like the ideal woman, perhaps, in, in the ancient literature. Do you think... I? I just can't let go of the her whole the husband thing. Do you think in the story they in in order to kind of elevate her image or her status, they just made him that weak and pathetic? I I do not Or, or really... was that their attempt? Cuz I think it makes her look kind of dumb for marrying such a fragile guy. Yeah, I I don't know that I would interpret that as he's a fragile guy. Uh, I think you're maybe being more critical towards him than than we should be. Maybe I am. Because when I read that, I'm just like, she's married to Charlie Brown out here. And this (laughs) dude, he just just strokes out real quick. Yeah. So uh, that rubbed me the wrong way. I, I would maybe encourage you to hear a little bit differently. And instead of thinking of him as this weakling, Think in terms of like those stories where there's this super fit athletic guy who has a heart attack while he's, you know, out on a run, like just doing a normal everyday activity. And everyone's just shocked because they're like, this guy runs like 20 miles a week. What's like, what, how did he 
die. Okay. You know what I mean? Like we've heard of those sort of freak accidents okay. I'll, or, or I'll incidents. try to be more charitable towards him. But. Okay. Yeah, I think we have to be charitable towards him. Okay. Um, so she she's a righteous, independently wealthy, attractive lady. And um, she's heard that these individuals have said, we're going to surrender if God doesn't act in five days. And she is irate. Um, so she sends her maid to summon leaders of the city to, to come to her. So this righteous, attractive, wealthy lady is sort of exercising a little bit of a power move there by sending out her maid to get the leaders of the city to come so she can rebuke them. And so she does. She says that this is awful. You shouldn't have done this. Um, and in verse 15 of chapter 8, she says that if the Lord um, should not wish to help us in the course of the next five days, he has the power to protect us on the day he wants, or even to destroy us before the face of our enemies. So not even giving them the chance to destroy us. And she's saying, you are tempting the Lord your God, and this is unrighteous, this is a lack of faith, and, and you've done something wrong. And um, so she is going to lead them to favor, is essentially what she says. She says, we need to give thanks to the Lord who tests us just as also our fathers did. And she reminds them of Abraham, how Abraham tested Isaac and how that turned out for their good. And um, she essentially says, you guys are wrong. Um, and they say, you're right. We were wrong. So you should pray for us because you're a pious woman. Pray for us because you're righteous and we're not, and we know the Lord will answer you. So this is what she she responds to them, and she says, I am going to do something that generations after generations are going to talk about. And um, Calling I, her shot. She's saying, I'm, I am going to act, and the Lord is going to restore Israel by my hand. Um, and, and so she is not happy with them, but they bless her. They say, go in peace and may the Lord be before you for vengeance on our enemies. Um, and then they returned from her tent and they went back to what they were doing before. So it's hiding in fear. Yeah. <laughs> getting well, ready to surrender. Yeah. So Judith reminds us here of some of the female judges in the book of judges like Deborah or other women uh, who sort of stepped up and, relied on the Lord and and acted with valor and courage and really acted as a warrior. And and that's what she's saying that she's going to do, and the Lord is going to use her to restore Israel. So then in chapter 9, Judith has a really long prayer, praying for the defeat of the enemies, praying for the honoring of God's name, and um, she is plotting to deceive this army and in, in to strike them down. So she says in chapter nine, verse 10, um, well, she, in verse nine, she says, see their arrogance, send your wrath upon their heads, give into my hand, a widow, the strength for that which I have planned. By the lips of my deceit, strike the servant along with the ruler and the ruler along with his attendant, break down their pride by the hand of a woman. For your strength does not depend on numbers nor your power on those who are strong, but you are the God of the humble a helper of the inferior, a protector of the weak, a shelter for the forsaken, a savior to those who despair. So she's asking the Lord for help, and she's making a big deal of wanting God to use her, a widow, a woman, to defeat a strong army. What do you think about her 
trying to find the verse. When she she's praying about the deceit she's about to carry out. Mm-hmm. That seems odd. Yeah. So she she's praying, let me deceive these people, essentially. So I think we should circle back to this topic at the end of the story. Okay. That way, um, the people listening to this podcast will know what deceit she's actually planning. Okay. But I think already um, we can draw a connection or a parallel to a story in the book of Judges um, where there's this evil guy, Sisera, and um, there's this woman, JL, who um, essentially kills this guy. So he's running and he, he's an enemy. He comes in and he, he hides in her tent and she gives him this milk that's probably alcoholic. It's like a, it's in a goat skin or, or horse hide skin or something, but it's probably fermented milk and, and he goes to sleep with this, you know, probably low level of intoxication. He's tired, he's resting, he's he's on the run. And um, she takes this tent peg and hammers it into his head and kills him. And then um, Deborah, the judge, the female judge from Judges 5, is singing the song of praise to the Lord. And I just want to read the two paragraphs where Deborah summarizes what happened there. She says in Judges 5.24, Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is the most blessed among tent-dwelling women. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him cream in a majestic bowl. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand for a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed. He fell. He lay down between her feet. He collapsed. He fell He between her feet. Where he collapsed, there he fell dead. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? Her wisest princes answered her. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil, a girl or two for each warrior, the spoil of colored garments for Sisera, the spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck? Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did, but may those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. So so whoever wrote Judith and, and constructed this story, the individuals are likely familiar with, with this situation where there's another woman who acts like a warrior and um, who prays to the Lord for help. And then there's this emphasis that this enemy of Israel was defeated by, by a woman. I did not know that story. Well, you should read Judges 4 and 5 sometime because it's it's really an interesting story. Um, but you have both Deborah um, and, um, why, why am I forgetting her name? Uh, the, the lady there, JL, uh, both women who are acting as, as the Lord's warriors in a sense. So you can imagine whoever wrote Judith has this story perhaps in mind as, you know, Crazy things have happened before, um, even though this is a, a fiction and maybe a, a rebellion writing that that's imagining what life could be like if we could defeat our enemies again. Um, you can start to understand why um, it might be acceptable for someone to pray that their deceit is, you know, carried out. Right. I guess the way the way it was worded 
maybe maybe I'm getting hung up on the wording because yeah. with the story from Judges, you know, it, she didn't do a whole lot. She gave him a couple things, then she just killed him. Yeah. So there wasn't. Yeah. So I think if you can imagine the situation, Israel is under attack. There's a huge army outside that's cut off all their food and all their water. You're at war. And in this woman's saying, the only way for us to win is if I can deceive the people we're at war against and infiltrate their camp and, and take out their leader, essentially. And so I think there are still some questions of morality and ethics we have to chase. But we can at least understand there, there are two groups at war, and this woman is yeah. considering, can I turn the tide? Right. Yeah, it just struck me. I I don't remember people praying for the Lord to bless their deceit. It just sounded yeah. odd. To well, me. and we have some situations that are very different because it's not someone who's about to you know go go kill somebody. But you have someone like Ruth dressing up, and then in the dead of night, you know, um, going to meet Boaz. You have things like that. You have. Um, Rebecca, who's hopeful that um, Jacob's deceit of his father, where he's understood to be Esau by covering himself with hair and, and making this food that tastes like the choice game, right? There are other deceit situations that take place where there are individuals who are hoping their deceit prospers. Um, and it's hard to judge the righteousness or unrighteousness of this. Um, you think of Genesis uh, 38, right, where where Tamar um, dresses up like a prostitute and, and meets Judah on the way, and there's a large measure, measure of deceit there. And at the end of that story, Judah says she's more righteous than I was. And um, we have to work to have a moral compass that helps us understand not only the morality of the situation, but also the complexity of the situation. That, well, make, that makes sense. Let's continue okay. the story. So Judah, in chapter 10, finishes praying. And um, if you remember, she's been wearing these clothes of mourning for three years and four months. But in chapter 10, she changes, and she stops wearing garments of widowhood, as they're described here. She takes a bath. Uh, she wears a lot of perfume. She did up her hair. So she arranged her, the hair of her head. She put a headband on it. She put on her clothes of merriment with which she used to clothe herself in the days of the life of her husband, Manasseh. She put sandals upon her feet and put on ankle bracelets and rings and earrings and all her jewelry. And she made herself very beautiful for catching the eyes of men, as many as might see her. So essentially, she's getting all dolled up and trying to look attractive and perhaps even seductive. And in fact, this is one of the morality questions that's just often discussed when people are evaluating this story, because this is really the only time that you have a woman in um, biblical or pseudo-biblical writings um, using their sexuality to gain an edge um, in this kind of way. Um, certainly, there are some similar-ish situations, as I mentioned with Judah and Tamar, for instance, but this is unique. Um, so there's some questions about the, the ethics and morality of this. 
Um, but so she gets all dressed up in a very beautiful way. And then she takes um, some food and some oil and some wine. So she's taking all this kosher Jewish food law approved food with her. And she leaves her city and she she eventually goes to um, Holofernes. And she walks up to their camp and the bodyguards um, see her and, you know, they ask her, what, what are you doing? And she essentially says, look, I'm escaping from Israel because they're doomed to die. I want to be on your side. And in fact, I can give you information that will help you defeat them. And so the bodyguards say, wow, well, you've saved your life by, by coming down to give us this information because you're right. We would have crushed you guys. Um, so while they take her to Holofernes, um, all these guys are like, man, she is so beautiful. And they're like, we, we definitely need to crush this people. They say, it is not good to allow one single man among them to re- remain alive, for they will be able to deal craftily with the whole world. So they're saying, you know, essentially, uh, the Jewish people are so beautiful and smart and stunning. We definitely need to beat them. Otherwise, eventually they're going to conquer us. And uh, so the the bodyguards take her to Holofernes and they lead her to his tent. And um, he talks with her and he tells her, you know, you've done the right thing. Don't be afraid. We're going to protect you uh, because you've had the courage to come and talk to us. No one's going to injure you and, and you're going to be treated well, just as happens to the servants of my Lord, King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's saying, look, if you're on our side, our, our mafia boss, our, our big king, he protects his own people. So, so you've come to the right place. And um, so he, he starts to talk to her and she essentially says, look, what this guy Akior told you is true. As long as Israel obeys their God, you can't defeat them. But I have good news for you because you've caught up their food supply and uh, their water. They are being tempted to eat the food that's dedicated to the Lord. And they're, they're being tempted to eat unclean food, food that is not permitted according to the law. And as soon as they do this, God is not going to be on their side anymore and you're going to be able to defeat them. So she says, this is, this is what God has sent me to do. He sent me to tell you about these things. And every, every day I need to go out into the wilderness and, and talk to God. And he's going to tell me when, when he's no longer on their side, essentially, when, when they've disobeyed. And um, when that happens, I'll tell you, and then you'll be able to lead your army into Judah, into Jerusalem, and you'll be able to set your seat in the midst of it. You'll get to rule over it. And she says, indeed, you will lead them like sheep for whom there is no shepherd. And um, I think even that line reminds us that there's a shared vocabulary, even by the New Testament authors. Because you remember, Jesus is described being Israel. He looks at them as if they're sheep without a shepherd. So some of this is just language that um, is, is in part of the thought world of the biblical authors, and we get exposed to here. That's a side note. She's essentially saying, um, I'm going to, I'll let you know. In Holofernes, in chapter 11, verse 22, response her, God has done well. So how presumptuous of him, right? God's done a good thing here, sending you before the people for strength to be in our hands, but for destruction among those who despise my Lord. He says this, 
And now you are pretty in your appearance and wise in your words. For if you do just as you spoke, your God will be my God, and you shall be treated in the house of Nebuchadnezzar and will be famous before all the earth. And um, so he, he essentially says, why don't you come and eat and drink with me? And she says, I can't do that. I need to eat, you know, according to our food laws. I brought my own food. And he's like, well, what about when your food runs out? Then will you eat with us? And she's essentially like, well, you're going to defeat them before that happens. She's like, my food will not run. Um, yeah. So so then she gets into this habit of each night going out into the valley and taking this purification bath. Um, and, and then um, she asks the Lord to direct her path. And essentially what she's establishing, what we'll find out later on, is she's establishing an escape route. Because she's she's just making it a common custom for her to go out at night, so that way she'll be able to leave, and um, no one's gonna ask any questions because it's just her normal pattern. Yeah. So she she does this, and um, eventually, um, as I guess Holofernes is getting more comfortable with her, he essentially invites her to a drinking party, and um, he says, you know, I I want to invite you to drink with us and be merry together. And Judith responded, at this point, now at this point, my Lord, I, I will drink with you because I, I am in a great mood. I've been exalted more, you know, my life has been exalted in me today more than all the days of my birth. And um, so she, she takes her food, she eats and drinks in front of him. And Holofernes was so super delighted about her and he drank very much wine. This is what it says. He drank more than he had ever drank in one day since he was born. And um, essentially, and it explicitly says that he's looking forward to sleeping with her. And so he's getting drunk and invites her to his tent. Go ahead. What, not, to, not to rewind too much, but what do you make of how easily and willingly they just kind of accepted her and listened to her. Yeah, I I think that as we read lots of literature, that's a common trope. Yeah. Where where an attractive woman is taken into confidence very quickly based on her yeah. um physical appeal. And that's exactly what she's contrived here. And um even in situations where where there's no like um contriving of a situation in that way uh there there are people who are believed very quickly so if you think of rahab in when when um the spies come and they trust her and they hide in her house and uh, they trust her to protect them yeah in in a moment's notice so so i don't think this is too out of the ordinary no i agree and that's what i was going to say i thought this section of the story is probably in my opinion kind of the strongest part of the story that that makes the most sense. I mean, yeah. cause I, I, it does make sense that they trusted her very quickly because the way I was thinking about it too, it's almost in reverse roles, but she comes in like a snake in their garden essentially. And they just, you know, hook, line and sinker. They're just buying what she's saying right away. Just like Satan in the garden of Eden, that you just got this little unknown thing with new information and they just, Oh yeah, great. I didn't know that. Let's go along with that. This is just going to be great for us, even better than we could have imagined. And they're very, 
kind of cavalier about it and they don't investigate it. They don't see any, you know, potential future doom from it. So I think that to me, that imagery made a lot of sense and it seemed very consistent with other, with other stories and with heck how, you know, lots of times we make errors in our own lives when we, you know, a snake slithers into our life and we think, Hey, this is a great new thing and we don't investigate it and boom. Yeah, you know, it bites you. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I I passed over this observation, but when in at the end of chapter eleven, when she has come before them and in before Holofernes, and um, she she speaks this plan to them um, in verse twenty, they all marvelled at her wisdom and they said, "There's no woman such as this from one end of the earth to the other, in beauty of face and intelligent words." And, and then later on, Holofernes tells her, you're pretty in your appearance and wise in your words. And this sounds like um, some of the language from the serpent in the garden coming together, where, where Eve looked on the fruit and saw that was, it was pleasing to the eyes and yeah. good for food. And there's this uh, presentation of knowledge and the promise of life and victory. And uh, there, there's a succumbing to the deception there. And you're right. It's like an inverse of that yeah. here. Um, so she she has deceived them. He's invited her now into his bedchamber, but he has drunk so much that he passes out. And then all of his servants, it says, they're all weary since the drinking party had been going on for a long time. So So these guys are drunk. So all his servants go away. And Judith goes into his tent with him. And everyone knows that apparently this this wise, attractive lady is is now becoming the um, I I don't know how to describe this, but but the they're becoming better friends. Yeah, they're, she she's um, entering into his bedchamber, and in, in they're coming together here, as as they know he is hoping would happen. Um, and but he's he's so drunk that he passes out. And so what she does is she sees his sword hanging on the post of his bed and she grabs it and she prays for strength from, from God. And then she strikes at his necks twice with all of her strength and, and she beheads this guy and, and she rolls his body from the bed and took the curtains from the pillars. And um, then she takes the head of this guy and puts it in her food bag and she and her maid leave the camp. And, um, so, so this is like, uh, a very grotesque scene and, um, would fit a lot of the kind of medieval literature maybe that we would read now in, in, um, or that you'd see on film even of uh, this, this is a really bizarre, grotesque, uh, situation where, where the enemy has been infiltrated and, and now, um, beheaded. So she leaves and she goes back and she, they, they kind of grossly hang this guy's head from the walls of their city. And um, she she tells them, look, we've won, like put on your armor. And then this guy, Achior, the, the guy who told um, Holofernes not to attack Israel, he he's convinced, um, he sees that the God of Israel is the true God. So he trusted in God very much. 
And it says that he circumcised himself and he was added to Israel. And so you start to see this outsider added now to the nation of Israel and the enemies of Israel being destroyed. And um, this this woman is being praised. So the the Assyrians flee. Um, All of the women of Israel run out to see her and praise her. And then Judith kind of has this song of praise that is somewhat similar to the song of Deborah in Judges 5 after Sisera is is defeated by Jael. So it's very similar in that way. But ultimately, um, they praise the Lord, they they worship God, and um, Judith lives to be 105 years old. So there's this pronouncement of um, kind of vindicating her, saying she was righteous and God gave her long life. And she died in Bethulia in this town. They buried her in a cave with her husband. Um, and there was no one who terrified the sons of Israel again in the days of Judith, nor for a long time after she died. Amen. So it's like, in, in all ended happily ever after. Is essentially is the ending of this story. Pretty much. No, the that the middle part of the story, in my opinion, is the best part of the story. It's the part that makes the most sense because yeah. you've got how do you, how are you pronouncing it? In my mind, I was reading it Holofernes. But um, it, it's Holofernes. I'm saying Holofernes. Holofernes. Okay, because you've got yeah, that part just makes the most sense. You've got Holofernes. Winning, you know, conquering a lot of whatever countries, everything is going right for him. His army is humming along. He's getting, you know, arrogant. Nothing's going to go wrong. You know, Israel or whatever, they're just going to be the next, um, the next ones that we conquer. And he's thinking that even though he's had proper warning that that's not going to happen and he ignores it. And I, I would think that's probably from his arrogance um, but arrogance from success. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just kind of think of how things like that can come up in, in our lives if it's, you know, oh, I've, I've got everything in perfect order. Nothing could go wrong. And then when we get warning signs, we ignore them because, hey, I've got everything in perfect order. Mm-hmm. It, it's going right. And then you get this little piece of chaos that sneaks in and it can take the whole thing down. So I think... That that's that's the strongest part of the story in my opinion. I'm not sold on her uh weak, maybe not weak husband and <laughs> her not remarrying, which which I guess is fine, but I'm just like if she was great and wise, wouldn't she want offspring to carry on her great lineage or yeah. something? And I she's mean, just kinda yeah. like, No, I'm good. Like Well, there are questions there, and I think the reason they have her and not marrying anybody is to prove her virtue. Um so Though the reader might have questions about her virtue in dressing up in the sensual way. Um, And and the story makes clear nothing happened between her and Holofernes. Um, But there's almost this sense of she she lived out the rest of her days in in total purity. So she's vindicated for this. Okay. So that, I guess, maybe just lends towards the symbolism they were going for. Yeah. Exactly. That makes sense because it didn't seem super realistic, but the, yeah, the, the sy- symbolism makes yeah, sense. Yeah, the point is there. Well, I think there's a lot that we could probably chase down, but I want to just offer one final observation as we conclude our, our podcast on Judith. And, and that is that this story was written probably like 150 years before Jesus came. And there's really no way for us to know 
how well known this story was. Obviously, it was popular enough that it's it's been preserved even to this day. Did everybody in Judea know this story or not? Was this as popular as, you know, like the Lord of the Rings is in our day to where just everyone has at least a common reference point for it to where even if they don't know all the features of the story, if you say orcs, that, you you know what they're talking about. Yeah, that clue. Um, yeah. Or, or is it perhaps something that is somewhat popularly well-known, but because some of the moral ambiguities in the story, people might be familiar with the concept but not know what it is. So perhaps something similar to like the Game of Thrones series in our day where probably everyone knows that name, but because of the moral ambiguities and problematic natures of it um, or portions of it, uh, people don't know the storyline or the details, but are at least aware of of the name. And perhaps people would be aware of the name Judith. And um, we don't know the popularity is my point. Uh, but I think that it represents an impulse that the, the Jewish people had while under the rulership and authority of an external nation, even while they're in their homeland. And that is that we want to see someone rise up and secure our freedom. And um, you see this in the other books, in, in the Maccabees and, and in other people who rise up and, and fight against these foreign invaders. And ultimately, we can understand why there was such a strong desire for Jesus to be the kind of king who overthrew the authority of the Romans and, and exercised kingship over the Romans. And when you have stories in your national history for hundreds of years, where you have your edition of Wonder Woman who who rises up and, and fights. Fight. I've not seen Wonder Woman, so I don't know how true that is in, in the story. But but you have this woman warrior, and, and you have these other stories of, of Jews who rise up against, against their foreign oppressors. Well, when it comes to Jesus, there's this long history of people who want to be freed from, from Roman rule. They, they don't want a kind of king who's defeated by the Roman rule. And with these stories in, in your history, you can understand that pressure and in, in that desire. So I think one of the values, and, and this is really the point that I'm trying to make, is, of, of reading stories like this is that helps us get into the thought world of, of the biblical authors and, and of the people who are reading the Old Testament. And we start to see what was important to them and in, in perhaps what shaped their desires, especially as they interacted with Jesus, who overturned their expectations and pointed a different way forward. And of course, in Jesus, we have a hero better than Judith could ever be. And, and he conquered in a different way. And in him, there was no guile or deceit. And instead, he gave of, of himself to, to serve and to save. Matthew, thank you for joining me on this special edition of our podcast as we continue to read some of the Second Temple literature and tonight talk about Judith. Thank you for having me. If you found the story of Judith interesting, then perhaps you would also be interested in the story of Susanna. Earlier in our podcast series, we talked about the book of Susanna, and that is indeed one of my favorite stories. So if you enjoyed this story, I'd encourage you to read it and to read Susanna as well. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more, you can visit us online at www.resurrectionmn.org.